Hey, what's good? This is Rich, and you're listening to Paychecks and Balances, where it's all about showing you what's possible in work, money, and life. And before getting into today's episode, I wanted to remind you to check out the blog because there are articles upon articles up from the PNB team of writers. There are things on blockchain, cryptocurrency for the everyday person like us, making things super accessible and easy to understand. Also have an article up on talking money with your family and a lot more. So if you haven't dropped by the Paychecks and Balances blog, be sure to do that. New content going up every week. And if you've been on the email list, the newsletter is coming back very soon. And if you're not and would like to join the free Paychecks and Balances email community for the monthly digest of what's happening in work, money, and life, plus other exclusive content, visit paybal, P-A-Y-B-A-L dot C-O slash email. Again, that's P-A-Y-B-A-L dot C-O slash email. I feel like I haven't said that in a while since it's been a few weeks since I've been behind the microphone. And on today's show, I'm chatting with financial samurai, Sam Dogan, and Sam runs a highly successful blog. You might have heard of it before. It's called Financial Samurai, and he's been doing this for a long time, over a decade, and he's generating a lot of passive income revenue. He's generating some of that through real estate. He's got other things that are going on. And what I really loved about this conversation is that he was so unapologetically him and also so candid in talking about the value of planning, fatherhood, negotiating severance for your work situation, real estate, and a lot more. And personally, it was just a conversation that I needed. And I feel like that's been a theme this season of the podcast where I'm talking to guests right at the time where I'm thinking about something or it's giving me a perspective that I need to make a decision in my life. So here's my chat with Sam. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. And most importantly, I hope you enjoy. Yo, Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Rich. Now, I gave people a little bit about your background in the intro, but for those that are not familiar, uh, tell the PNB family a little bit about yourself. Sure. I worked in finance for 13 years, New York City for a couple of years, San Francisco for 11 years. Uh, left my day job in 2012 after I negotiated a severance. And I've been free ever since. Uh, since then, I've traveled a lot, uh, got my wife to negotiate a severance in 2015, and also just leave the corporate world behind. So we've just been trying to live our lives. We've been writing a lot of content on Financial Samurai three times a week ever since 2009. Wow. And we're now parents. We're, we're two stay-at-home parents to two small children. Now, I'm going to get into it with a, a fairly values-driven question based off of something you just said, because consistency is what comes out to me. Three times a week, every year, since 2012, you said it was? Uh, 2009, when I started Financial Samurai, and definitely since 2012, when I left my day job. Got you, got you. So how else has that consistency showed up and and helped you? Because I imagine it shows up in other areas too. I mean, it shows up a lot. I used to play a lot of tennis when I was a kid. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was develop a topspin one-handed backhand, but I was never really good at it uh, in high school. So I just did a slice. And then when I was 30 years old, I just got back into league tennis and I said, you know, I want to develop a topspin backhand. So I just consistently hit the ball over and over again forever. And now, well, about two, three years later, I have a very consistent one-handed backhand. So I just realized if you just do the work, eventually it'll start clicking, whether it's in your mind or in your body, your muscle memory, it'll just click. And so I decided I'm going to do publish three times a week, 
and maybe even a newsletter one time a week for 10 plus years and see what happens. And so the result is good stuff. And when was the inflection? I'm I'm not even going to call it the inflection point, but when was the point where you knew Financial Samurai was really going to take off or that it was destined for great things? Because I feel like there's like that tipping point for everyone where you're like, all right, this thing is really starting to move. Well, so I started in 2009 and October 2011, I was in Santorini, Greece. First time I was really starting to slack off at my job and in the sense that I would take six weeks of vacation a year, which is kind of unheard of in finance, but that was what was allotted to me. So I took it. And then while I was in Santorini, Greece, I got a message from my phone after hiking the, the hills at a bar. And this guy said, uh, I would like to pay you like $1,100 to advertise on Financial Samurai. Just put up my link. And at the time, I was drinking an overpriced beer. And I was thinking, 1100 bucks That buys a lot of beer. And so I said, okay, send me the code. It was on my iPhone, Wi-Fi. I put it up in 30 minutes. And then he sent me the money in 30 minutes. And I thought, wow, ah, maybe, maybe I could uh, do this and generate a lot of supplemental income. And so... At that time, October 2011, about two year, two and a half years later, I thought, okay, maybe this could be great. I, you know, it's gonna be great if I leave my job and I can do something and make, you know, I don't know, several thousand dollars a year and live a decent life in Hawaii, you know, surfing and just chilling out. But the real catalyst was negotiating my severance in 2012. Being able to negotiate the severance enabled me to collect about five years of living expenses, normal living expenses. And that was when I was like, well, I wanted to work in finance until 40. I was 34 at the time. The severance bought me about five years of my life back. Wow. So I'm going to go for it. So I went for it. Now, I don't think that I knew that it was five years worth of life covered. And I'm sure there were there were other things because we definitely talked about the, uh, the, the severance before. And I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the process of actually negotiating that is especially now. Um, but yeah, I didn't know. Wow. That is a, a mighty fine negotiation. Good, sir. Well, well, the thing is, so in, in finance, well, the higher up you go, you more and more of your compensation is in deferred stock. And that stock for me was deferred over, I believe it was four years. And so if you work for four years, every single year later, you have four years of deferred comp. So that's like one year. And I was there for 11 years. Gah. And also they forced us, uh, management forced us in 2008 or nine to invest a lot of our bonus in these quote, toxic assets, mortgage-backed securities that were all blowing up back in 2008, 2009, 2010. So they yeah. forced us to buy our own crap, the company's own crap. We had nothing to do with it, but they were like, well, we're going to do the right thing. And spread out all the misery and crap to our employees and there's nothing we could do so i don't know something like fifty thousand of my bonus went into the crap and that was a smart thing for the manager to do to get the crap off their balance sheet and into their employees hands but the crap turned out to be great investments <laughs> because they were all purchased in 2008 2009 so they ended up being like triples and quadruples and um so it turned out well but it had a seven-year i think it was called bullet or what balloon it means that you don't get your money back until after seven years. Ah, uh, got you. Yeah. It's like a seven-year cliff or like a vet. It's almost, yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. And so I had to wait seven years from 2010 
So I was getting paid my deferred stock and cash compensation from 2012 to 20, like 15, 16. And then I got that bullet payment, um, 2017. So can you believe that? Like I left in 2012 and I, I finally like, got my last payment in 2017. I was, I was, I was psyched. That's insane. It reminds me of there's a I want I don't know if it's Bobby Bonilla Bonilla. There's a baseball player. Oh yeah, yeah, who yeah, signed, yeah. <laughs> that guy. So is that him who signed like the smartest contract in history? Oh, I mean, it's a great contract. It's yeah. I mean, it's it's like an annuity that keeps on paying. It's unbelievable. Yeah, pretty much. I want to say it's like for the rest of his life. Don't quote me on that. It's something crazy. Yeah. But he took this extended long term where every year the Mets or whoever yeah. it is has to cut him a check. Uh, and I didn't know that even when, even in terms of what you're talking about, that it could go five years out, which is incredible, but I'm sure, especially now, because you've probably heard of the great resignation and just kind of where people are now, where we're, we're coming out of the pandemic as of this recording, we, we might be going right back into it in terms of the lockdown and everything else, at least out here in California, we never know, but, uh, people have had all of this time to reflect. They're realizing that what they're doing today may not be what they want to do in the future or even, you know, a few months from now. So there's how you thought about negotiating uh, your way out then. I'm curious if anything has changed about that now and uh, if there's anything different in how you would advise someone go about negotiating their way to freedom right now. I mean, now employees. I guess employees who are able to wa- work from home have the most leverage I've seen in a long time. seems like people are getting paid well, benefits are going up, flexibility to work from home or not have to work at all, work two jobs and your employer doesn't even know about it. And I just had, I was playing fr- <laughs> softball with a friend of mine. He, he went to Chicago for like a week and then he's going to see his parents for another week and, and he's going on another vacation. I was like, wait, how how you how can you afford so much vacation? He's like twenty twenty six year old guy, and he's like, well, employers just allow me to work from anywhere and do what I want, and so that really got me thinking. Like, wow, I mean, if you want to leave your day job now, you've got tremendous leverage to either ask for your raise or promotion, or or negotiate your severance because you know they want to make employees as happy as long as possible until they can find your replacement. So you can approach mm. it in a win-win scenario where I'm going to be able to find my replacement, train him or her for three to six months, whatever it takes so that you know nothing skips a beat. And in return, please give me all my deferred Google stock compensation and please give me severance. I've been here for whatever, seven, nine years. You know, I'd appreciate it. And uh, it's, it, it works. And my biggest disappointment since writing my book on how to engineer layoff in 2012 is that not more people have adopted this type of strategy to exit the workforce. It's a no brainer. But it's scary as hell. Let's be real. Like for a lot of people, that's like a scary, that's a scary thought because I've seen situations where, uh, maybe not specifically this, but people, they go in, they say something about taking a leave or they say something about, you know, another opportunity and then they get, they get let go the next day, you know? So for the average person, and I I think especially with us being in, in tech and, and in Silicon Valley, we probably have like a different perspective. And I think we exist in like a bubble, um, in itself in some ways. That's like, a pretty scary thing to do if you're also worried about security in itself, you know? I mean, it's the same sc- shade of scariness. If, if you plan to, let's say, retire early and never work again, what's the downside? 
of you trying to negotiate severance. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just don't plan and think things through, which is the whole purpose of that my book that I've written and also a lot of the articles that I've written. If you plan to quit your job and join a competitor for 30% more money, well, you have a window of opportunity and you have a grace period where you don't have to work between those jobs. You know, Don't quit Friday and join Monday. You have an opportunity to try to negotiate your severance as well. I mean, think about, let's say in the NBA, you have a five-year contract and you get fired after two years with $50 million left on your five-year contract. You can rework your contract or you can kind of get paid double for a while. I mean, this is at least for coaches. Mm. Uh, you know, coaches, they can make double money for a couple of years because they got a contract, the employer has to pay it, but they got fired and someone else wants to hire their services. So you have to be a Goliath for yourself. That's one of the main messages, empower people to fight as hard for themselves as they do for other people and as corporations do for themselves. I love the idea of, of fighting as hard for ourselves because I think Within this, people still feel this this obligation. And I felt this myself, even with something as simple as taking vacation time. There are still times where when I put the time in, like I feel like a guilt about that. Even though it's my time to have off, you know, even though it's you know, my right to take care of self first, that's still a, a bit of a struggle. So I can only imagine the amount of struggle that, that other folks may have if they've never even thought about putting themselves first, even because I even think about people who during this recession, they've said, you know, maybe I'm not going to press as hard about salary. And I'm like, well, what does your skill set and talent have to do with the market? Like the company will will do what it needs to retain the people that, that it needs. Because I've actually seen people even go like, well, you know, times are a bit more difficult. And so like, I don't want to rock the boat. Have you come across any of that? Well, I, I haven't been in a corporate setting since 2012, but the people... Well, I mean, just in people you know, because oh. I'm sure whether tenants or otherwise, and, and, and we'll talk about real estate, but I'm I, I'm curious if in your travels you've come across any of that. I mean, I just see people all the time not selling themselves short. They don't believe in their abilities. They feel they don't deserve it. And I don't know, I maybe it's a male thing. I, I think there's like some study that says that males believe more in their abilities until they get them, you know, they, they want that money before they're able to get there. And women are more cautious in terms of fighting for themselves. But whatever that stereotype is, I, I know myself, I, I bet on myself, right? So I bet on myself. I left my job in 2012, good six-figure job, and I wanted my time, and I, and I believed I wouldn't fail. I believed I wouldn't be on the streets. But I planned. I planned very meticulously. And the great thing is planning is free. Thinking ahead is free, you know, whether it's for your career or as an investor. As an investor, I'm always trying to predict the future, whether I get it right or wrong is a different different scenario. But you're always trying to think about various scenarios that could happen and you have a game plan to invest accordingly. And that's what you got to do for your career as well. I love the idea of planning is free. I actually had to write that down. That might be the episode name. Who knows at this point? But it's so true because uh, I know for self, one thing I, I've even struggled with is just getting into a uh, a more, what I'll call a standard routine in terms of how I think about things. Because when you act reactively, you know, sometimes you don't make the best decisions. A lot of times you end up making the more emotional decision, which is not the uh, best decision. No. When we talk about planning, 
Maybe if you could give just, just like a couple of things that people really need to think about in advance, especially if they're struggling with having that type of conversation. What are just kind of maybe a, a couple of things or a couple of tips that come to mind as far as the, the planning aspect of it for someone who's trying to parachute out? Well, so it's called pre-mortem. It's understanding the pre-mortem instead of the post-mortem. I forgot where I was reading this, but the advice is, so, you know, after you get in a car accident, let's say, God forbid, you're dazed, confused, you might be injured, you don't know what you're doing. But if you pre-mortem it by saying, if you get in a car accident, these are the people to call, this is where your insurance is, and all that, things should hopefully go more smoothly. So when it comes to leaving your day job, pre-mortem is, so what are the scenarios that would happen if you were to try to negotiate a severance, for example? One scenario is to say, okay, your manager says, okay, let's talk. Let's talk about what are the things that you need to be happy here. So one scenario is you fail at your severance, but they make you happier. They give you a raise, promotion, and less work to do. How will you feel about that? So if you don't prepare for how will you feel about that in that scenario, you might bumble things around and say, oh, you know, I, I, I can't handle it. I quit. You know, it's like, I don't know, your brain just short circuits. So right. that's one scenario. The other scenario is, well, that's ridiculous. Why the hell are we going to pay you to leave? You know, and then your manager who has never experienced this type of conversation himself before, then kind of gets all hot, hot and bothered. That would be me. Just storms out. I would not know if someone yeah. came to me with that. I'd be like, let me talk to HR. And then you get offended. You might get offended. You'd be like, wait, what? Why are you hot and bothered? I'm opening my heart to you and telling you this is what I would like, and I think I can make a win-win scenario. And then, but your manager has nothing, to, nothing to do with it, and it's just this really awkward situation. And then, and then I don't know, something bad happens where they say, you know what? We're, I don't think your heart is into it, but we can't fire you because that would be that would open up lawsuits because there's no there's no track record of six months bad performance. You've actually been a great performer. So you're just like stuck in the muck. Well, what, what, what will happen then? And then, and then the other scenario might be, well, actually, thank you for coming and bringing this to my attention because we're actually going through another round of layoffs as part of the, the culling process we do every year. The bottom five, 10% gets culled every single year. Uh, let's talk about how you think this would pan out and how you can help us transition properly or you know, help promote your junior into your role. How do you envision this playing out? And what would you like for your severance? If you have a plan for that, well, then you know you've talked to three, other, three or four other people who got let go. You know that every year they work, they got two or three w- weeks of severance pay. You know they got six months of free healthcare and so forth. So... If you plan for those three scenarios, you're probably going to be very well prepared come negotiation time. And so that's an example. I think people should think similarly, even when it's just salary, it, pretty much any type of negotiation, that planning is free and that upfront thought about the different different scenarios is going to be important. We're heading in toward the end of the year for, which I can't believe I'm saying that it's August and I'm saying we're heading toward the end of the year. But that is performance review season for a lot of people. And and that's another time to think about all the scenarios in terms of the conversations you might be having with your manager about what your future looks like. And uh, if you do have a plan to ultimately exit, like, is that something that's going to be part of those conversations? I wink. So I know that we wanted to talk about a piece that you recently wrote, and it was perfectly timed. Three 
white tenants, one Asian landlord, a story about opportunity. So people might hear that headline and think a lot of different things. Uh, I read the article, thought it was very interesting. It actually reminded me of many a conversation I've had about why certain populations, groups, whatever words we, we want to use, are able to create businesses, generate businesses, create generational wealth, that type of thing. I was curious about the motivation, like what was it that led you to, to write this in the, in the first place? Because it's very thorough, which all, all your stuff is. I was wondering what was going through your mind when, when this idea came about. Well, you know, over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, racial inequity and opportunity and the K-shaped recovery, you know, and the investor class has done well since the pandemic began, whereas the non-investing class has done poorly. It got me really thinking about, you know, the Stop Asian Hate Movement, all that stuff. It got me thinking about uh, my own story and why I've been so diligent in trying to build a real estate portfolio mm -hmm. and also maintain a small business, which is Financial Samurai. And it hit me that actually all my tenants are white here in San Francisco. I got three tenants and they're all white and I'm the Asian landlord and there are a lot of Asian landlords here in San Francisco. It's about a 50% of the population is Asian. And, and real estate is really uh, a valuable asset class in the Asian community because it's a tangible asset that really just doesn't go poof and lose half its value in, in one week or one day. Right. And so it's been a bedrock of wealth building for the Asian community and I think for many communities. And so it just got me thinking and to try to speak to people and say, don't rely on society to try to get you paid, promoted, and help you get to the promised land because we're all looking after our own. And I used, for example, the interns for Donald Trump, for example, and you know, they were like, they all looked like him. And I, I, I looked at the interns for Barack Obama and most of them all looked like him. It was a very obvious, obvious choosing of who you want to take care of and who you want to employ. And I looked at uh, other platforms like, um, you know, the editors and writers at Huffington Post, they were all women, and they were mostly white women. And I thought to myself, I, I don't see anybody like me, an Asian American person in positions of power, or very few people. I, I just It's just very hard to see any kind of opportunity. And the reality is, we all tend to take care of the people we like, and the people we like tend to be people of our similar backgrounds. Yeah, it's a fact. I mean, we see it in, uh, and you might even reference this in the article, I think you did like referral networks in corporate America, like why it looks the way it does, especially in Silicon Valley. People refer people that look like them, who refer people who look like them, who promote people who look like them. Yeah, and, it, and I don't think we can finger point and say there's discrimination. It's just a natural human tendency to take care of people who you like and who do you hang out with. Just, just look around at the people you hang out with. And you, know, you look in, uh, at the personal finance community or the fire community, it's a very homogenous community. And so you're going to have the same people get interviewed, get opportunities. If you look at the media, the finance media covering personal finance, people look quite similar as well. And then so they pull upon the people that they're familiar with. And I recognize that as a serious disadvantage ever since I was a kid. I grew up in Asia for 13 years, and then I came to Virginia for high school and college. And it, there's not many Asian Americans or Asian people in Virginia. And so I recognize that, that disadvantage early on really early on. So I told myself, man, I'm going to have to, I got to find some way. So I'm going to, I'm going to work 
as hard as I can, save as much money as I can, and reinvest as much money as I can into hopefully more stable passive investments. And so I came across real estate, right? Real estate is a no-brainer to me where I reinvested 80 plus percent of my savings and bonuses into real estate while I was working in equities in finance. And and then just this whole thing, this issue with the hate and all that since the pandemic began made me realize, man, I can't quit financial samurai. I can't I can't quit now after 12 years. I got to keep it going for another 15 to 20 years until my kids are like 25. And then you hand it over the sword? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is like, I now I just worry about my kids where he's only, my boy's only four years old and my daughter's only 12, 20 months old. But I, I, I kind of go through this trauma if I think about how their lives will be over the next 20 to 25 years. Will anybody fight for them? Are people going to kick them down because they don't look like the majority? And I, and I worry about them. Uh, and as any parent will worry about their child. So I said, you know what? Worst case scenario, they can't get into a good university. They can't get a great job at Google. It's too competitive. And they just don't have a lot of direction. Well, worst case scenario, they can be property managers for the real estate portfolio. Mm. That gives them some purpose, right? The real estate portfolio that I'm building. There's always something that you got to do, you know, maintenance, dealing with tenants, finding new tenants and so forth. Or over the next 15 years, I'm going to teach them about online marketing, writing, PR, audio, podcasting, video, finance, anything that has to do with running a business online. I'm going to teach them that so that if they end up with no job, no opportunities, nothing, at least they can work for the family business. Wow. I mean, that is many a generational wealth story. I mean, that's that's what I'm thinking because it was so damn hard for me. And I know going through difficult things will, I think, make you a better person, a stronger person. But I just got this insurance. I want insurance underneath the insurance, just in case. Because I, I just think the world is getting smaller. It's getting more competitive. You know, I look at you and, you know, your previous guest, Roger, and I'm thinking, wow, you guys, I had no idea you guys worked at Google. And, you know, you guys went to great private schools, right? You went to Cornell. Yeah. I think Roger went to, I, I forget, Case Western somewhere. I'm thinking about, there's, I couldn't have gotten into those schools. First of all, I couldn't have gotten into your universities. I couldn't have, I can't get a job at Google. I tried in 2012 or something or 2011. Yeah. So many rejections. There's like no way. So if my kids are going to be like me, pretty average, then I think life is going to be difficult. So it's up to us parents to figure out how we can help them. That's so interesting because you you say pretty average. And I get how you mean that. I, I totally understand how you mean that. But to someone listening and anyone who probably goes and looks you up, it's like average. Like, this is freaking incredible. Like, how is this average? You know, it's average because I went to a state school and I think I got lucky a lot. So I, I can't I, I can't assume that my kids are going to get lucky. Yeah, they're, they're going to be lucky because they have parents who care for them. But I, I don't think anybody, like, there's so much luck. There's so much luck, you know, me getting the phone handed to me by my VP who said, oh, do you want a job opportunity in San Francisco? Because she knew I was kind of on the, I was on the cutting block in New York City. I mean, that's luck. I won't get philosophical with it, but when I think about what you said about consistency and probably relationship building. I'm assuming there are probably some other things that like you've done well over time that, to where even if you were going to be on the chopping block in, in one place, there were people who would look out for you elsewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, 
Sure. You know, consistency is like one thing you can control. You can control, you can control your work ethic. And that's the one thing I'm going to tell my kids. And that's one thing I tell myself. You might not be very good at something, but you can control being consistent and continuing to do what you promised to do. Keeping and over word, time, yes. unless you're extremely unlucky, something positive is going to happen to you. You last 10 years, you know, recording your podcast once a week for 10 yeah. years, something great is going to happen to you, some opportunity that you won't expect. It's funny you say that, um, just given I'm fresh off a podcast conference a couple of weeks ago, and I went into that saying, this year is the year, something life-changing is going to happen. And there are things that, that have happened, but I, and, and I love that, that attitude of if you just keep going, something good is bound to happen, unless you're an incredibly unlucky person. But I feel like you're not an incredibly unlucky person if you move intentionally. I do think a lot of times, and I did this for, for many years as well, that there's, there's the, all of the societal and everything else, but there are a lot of times where we let life kind of happen to us. And we're, I don't want to use the word victim, but we're kind of just like the result of, of how life is happening to us versus taking control. And I'm listening to what you're describing and, and about how you're going to teach your children. And to me, uh, I hear less about the specific business, and but I hear more about like, here's how to take control of your life and here's how to navigate if you run into a difficult situation. Like I hear more about the ingenuity in that than any particular, you know, lane that they might go into when they grow up. Yeah. So many unknown variables in the future. So it goes back to pre-mortem planning. You know, I have one story where I decided to coach high school tennis uh, back in 2017 you know, when my wife was pregnant with our son and my friend said, why, why the hell are you going to coach high school tennis? Don't you have other better things to do? You know, the pay was like a thousand dollars a month for a three month season. And I told him, well, you know, I hear all these stories about the difficulty of being a parent to a teenager, especially to boys. And I like teaching. I think my writing comes across as someone who likes to educate and teach and banter with people. So I said, why not be a high school tennis coach to try to understand what my boy might be like 14, 15 years in the future when he's a teenager so I can be better prepared. Why not? And he said, you're crazy, but okay, have fun. (laughs) (laughs) That is crazy, but I love it. I love it. Again, it's, it's intentionality in a different way. Now on the real estate front, it's something that you've gotten into. Uh, we talked a little bit about why you decided to write the article. We talked about some of the other things as it relates to family and, and why building this generational wealth is important. But I know that there are some other points that that you wanted to highlight in particular. I think even around, um, you know, how you ended up with having three you know, white tenants. And, and, and I know something else you said in the article is that you don't look for any particular person. You, you, you just look for who, whoever's qualified to take the spots. And that happens to be who lives in uh, the properties that that you own. So can you talk a little bit about that too? I just decided to analyze my tenants' backgrounds uh, and and, and figure out, you know, what what makes them special. Because at the end of the day, I'm looking for good people with good finances who are going to take care of the property and pay on time, right? That's that's all I want. And I'm going to provide the best product possible as a attentive landlord who fixes everything and makes sure you get what you want and you get what you pay for. And so I just remember looking at my tenants' backgrounds and my latest tenant, uh, one is a CFO of a successful startup that might get bought for hundreds of millions of dollars or go IPO. They went to Stanford Business School. And uh, another tenant, um, 
I think he worked at Google. <laughs> he worked at Google as a product manager. So I know how much, I mean, if you work at Google as a product manager, you're probably making, well, actually, I know what he's making, but you know, you're probably making like $300,000, $500,000. And you know, he's since moved on from Google to another great job at a pre-IPO company. And they're going to crush it. They're going to crush it. I, you know, yeah, they pay a lot for rent relatively, but they're, they're going to crush it. Their kids are going to have great opportunities. And I think to myself, well, Am I crushing it? I don't think I'm crushing it. I, I, I don't, I'm not riding the Google wave or the pre-IPO startup wave. And someone told me something really interesting. He said, we we're just playing tennis. And he said, uh, well, you're, you're kind of the dummy who decided to stay in San Francisco and not latch on to any, any high growth startup or tech company. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then he immediately made me feel poor because he was actually a really rich guy. I was like, <laughs> no, you're right. I've been here. He's like, why don't you go to Hawaii? And I was like, I'm trying to go to Hawaii, man, man, but I can't. Every time I try to leave, they pull me back in. And I thought to myself, yeah, this is uh, strategically unsound to stay in one of the most expensive cities in the country, not latch myself onto a very wealthy or high growing company. Because not only do I not make that money, I also don't build that network of friends within a powerful company that can help me or my family get ahead in the future. So think about that for those of you guys who are working at a a successful company is that your network, you don't know when you're going to need them, but they'll Mm -hmm. come in handy one day. Mm -hmm. I always tell people that you never know where someone else is going to land. So these people that you work with today, even if you don't, even if you can't wait for that person to be gone, like you never know where some of these folks are going to land and uh, when you might need to contact someone and say, hey, um, I, you know, I'm interested in a role at your company or even worse, as you probably know happens, a resume comes in, somebody, a recruiter comes to you, says, hey, I know you worked at this company. Do you know this person? Oh, that person was trash. Now you're not getting an interview or that person's not getting an interview, oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Black getting blackballed is very apparent and very uh, something people need to be aware about because it's it's a small community. Yeah, it's it's a very real thing. But on the other side of that, there is the network. And I say even with pe- people who work at the companies like the Googles, the Apples, all of these companies, it's kind of accepted and known that when you leave, you have maybe one or two opportunities to leverage that company name and leverage those relationships and and ultimately go and be successful. But after that, it does kind of lose the luster. It's like, okay, why hasn't anything that you've done since then worked out. But like that, that capital is, is huge. A lot of people leave their companies and go to run their businesses full time and they'll make their company that they worked for full time, their first client. That's an option as well. Maybe someone could even negotiate that, you know? Yeah. You never know. Your examples remind me of, I guess, two, two important things that I I found very compelling. And one is to be good at something, to be very good at something, to be in the top 1% of something, anything, and then two, to be likable, you know, to be likable. And and what I found on my journey on Financial Samurai is that I've written very unlikable articles out there that have angered a lot of people and that have said that I'm in a bubble and whatever, whatever, and a lot of other mean things. And that is also something that I think about a lot more now that I have children and after the pandemic. You know, do I want to write something that will make me be more unlikable or do I want to be more balanced in my approach? So it seems like it's a natural course of action. The larger or the longer you are around, the more you kind of hug the middle, which is kind of sad, but that's also kind of the reality. 
it makes sense just as you just see and you hear more, you learn more, we all grow. Because even uh, if you think about a lot of what we see now where people, they they go and dig up tweets from someone from 12 years ago. To, like, oh, yeah. I, I mean, like the, the way that we talked and thought a decade ago, even some of the stuff that I said, like I went and deleted everything as far as I, I went like 12 years back and I was like, oh, ain't, wow. ain't, ain't no one coming for me when I run for office. Like, <laughs> no, ain't <laughs> Somebody's probably already screenshotted stuff, but it's interesting. It's it's one of those things where it's just a law of numbers too, and you're not gonna please everyone. And even like you know, let's say a million people come and read your site a month, and if only just I don't know one percent of people hate your guts or something, that's ten thousand people, you know. So it's interesting on this journey. At the end of the day, I think it's important for us as people who put things out there to stay true to what we believe in to respect other people's perspectives. I always try to respect and, and and share other people's perspectives. But the problem is, is like on social media and going across the country, everybody just, it, it seems kind of divided the country, which is so sad in the way we think, whether it's from vaccines to ideologies. But if we all kind of traveled more, met more people, not just hang out with people who look like us, I think things would be better. I totally agree with that. And uh, I know there are people who are listening and, and they're thinking of all the other structures and everything in place. And, and, and we are thinking about those too, but we've also got to think about the, the lives that like we live today. And I know what many of the folks in the audience for, for this show uh, look like and, and the type of things that, that they're into. And for a lot of us, if we have that level of intentionality and if we do prioritize it, it may take some time, but you know, the the traveling, the experiences, I know that those are things that uh, I want to do a lot more of. And I know at the point that I've got young podcasters uh, running around the crib that there's already an experience that I want for them. And and, and this is interesting. I, I, I feel like um, ultimately, a lot of times in the personal finance space, and this is going to sound like a pivot, but it's related. It's all about the the struggle story. And a, and a lot of us have have had struggle stories in terms of how we've gotten to where we are today, and, and there's nothing wrong with wrong with that. And I wouldn't take anything away from that. But I don't aspire for my kids to have a struggle story. And sometimes I feel like within some of these spaces, we'll turn our nose up at people who are successful but did not have a struggle story. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah. I don't want my kids to struggle. You don't want your kids to struggle. So <laughs> ideally, like no one has to have a struggle story because we're doing the right things in terms of building our wealth and, and setting our kids and our families up so that they can then do the same. And that's how this starts to, to snowball generationally with real estate being a part of that, you know? Yeah. Not struggle to the point of mental illness and trauma. Definitely struggle somewhat because it makes the success all that sweeter. And and when you're speaking of struggle, I, I really empathized with your story where you're sharing how you almost got expelled in middle school. The reason why that really spoke to me was because I almost got expelled in middle school as well when I was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And this was during the Gulf War. We were just rascal kids and I had friends from a competing rival school who decided to play a prank on our school and basically call in like a a threat to the school. And then the school, our school had to be evacuated because of this, this bomb threat. So now looking back, it was, it was terrible. But uh, as kids, as middle schoolers, we're just prank calling from a public phone. Remember the principal interviewing all of us 
and just, you know, we would talk and there was like 10 of us and, but nobody would out anybody. Yeah. And we just, code <laughs> was just silence and I didn't get expelled, but there was this one kid who did. And I don't know how he got caught. I guess someone said something somewhere, but I was just kind of like, wow, that was like a big lesson as a 13 year old kid. Wow. Could have uh-huh. got expelled, learned how to stay quiet and be loyal to your friends. Not, yeah. not to mess your, mess things up too bad. Yeah, no, no snitching even back then. And uh, that experience—it's crazy you say that. One, well, yeah, that that experience. I don't know if you follow like any of the Marvel shows or anything like that, like the various like timelines. But I feel like that experience was like a fork uh, in my timeline that set up a, a completely different trajectory for my life. Because had I not got expelled, I would have gotten a, as I think as you saw, I posted, I would have gotten a scholarship to this high school. Yeah, that probably would have been the most comfortable high school I could have went to. I probably would have kept up a lot of the same habits. I would have hung with a lot of the same people who are still in the same place to this day. So that getting expelled like that, like it sucked at the time, you know, not being able to go to my little graduation, but like (laughs) us just sitting here having this conversation and like looking back at that and just like how different life is versus how it was then. And and, and some of the challenges I I think is, is, is something to just be very, thankful for and uh, and glad things did not turn out another way. And something you said as we were talking about struggle, and it has stuck with me since the first time you came on the podcast was save until it hurts. <laughs> Nobody's going to save you. Nobody's going to save you. So you better save until it hurts every month. Yeah. Otherwise you're not saving enough. Yeah. And, and that has helped me stock away. It's actually helped me stock away money in some situations that have allowed me to do some things, allowed me to travel, take some trips and be in a season of abundance. And uh, I, I know that's done the same for you. And we're rounding toward the end of the podcast. Uh, I know that we wanted to talk more about the article. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Is there anything else in particular that you wanted to highlight or get into for the PNB family so we can hit that real quick? Otherwise, I'm going to let you tell the people where to find you around the web if they have not been the Financial Samurai and read the blog and interacted with you on social. No, the main points of the article is to, to take care of your own family and to not rely on anybody because... You might get lucky and someone might pick you out of the crowd and say, hey, you're the one that I'm going to promote and support and bring you up the ladder. But the reality is life is tough. Life is cruel. People are not going to like you, even if you don't say a thing. Maybe it's because of the way you look or talk or whatever. It's tough out there. And I think the more we can recognize how tough it is, the more we can do things to take care of ourselves, whether it's through savings building that rental property portfolio, having that side hustle, whatever. The world is, it's so clicky. And if you just so happen not to be in the right click, it's going to be more difficult for you. So that that was my main point. Um, and as for where you can find me, I try not to be on social media too much. I'm on Twitter, uh, but I try not to spend more than like half an hour a day on that. I'm really just on financialsamurai.com and I read all the comments, even the nasty ones. <laughs> and I'm trying to bring in your point of view. If you write a nasty comment or something that's you know really against what I think, then maybe we'll create a post and talk it out. Uh, and I'll often respond to to some really good viewpoints because I really, really do want to hear everybody's perspective. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think one of the most impressive things about your platform, and I remember reading it early on, it's kind of crazy to like have read someone's platform like years ago and then to talk to them later. 
I never had like the, this guy's a D head, but I was, but I did have like the, he has very strong opinions and to be where you are today and to be able to have strong opinions on different topics and to not have the community go up in flames. That's been pretty incredible to me. So how have you created that balance? Because I've, I've seen many a website go down or many a person get run off the internet or many a person kind of change who they are to try and adapt, especially when the almighty coin is on the line. One of the reasons is that when I left my day job, I felt I had enough. I've written that I had a net worth, net worth of about $3 million in 2012. I had about $80,000 a year in passive income. So that was enough. Mm. And so my wife, who was who's three years younger than me, worked for three years to then leave at 35 as well. She earned, she saved. And then by the time she left in 2015, we had over $100,000 a year in passive income. So it was enough for us. And so one of the things that I've realized is that if you want to be nicer, have more money. <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of crazy, but um, if, if you have more money and you can take care of yourself and you feel more financially secure, you're going to be less angry and jealous of other people because you got yours. You're good. You know, your, your seatbelt is on. You're not, you're not hating on anybody as much because you're okay. And what I've realized through literally hundreds of thousands of comments since 2009 is that oftentimes there's some issue that has brought you to my site that is bothering you and you're trying to rectify it. And so you're taking it out on a stranger on the internet. And I understand that because I've probably done that before. But as you get more financially secure, you become more empathetic. You just don't, you're not as jealous and it's and it's something where once you have fu money, it's actually really hard to say fu. Huh? You actually you just try to help more people. Uh, I mean, at least that's from my perspective. You just try to help more people because the great thing about being online since two thousand and nine is that the people who hated me as twenty five year old kids who thought they knew it all, you know, they're now thirty seven. They might have a family, yeah, or they might be. 50 times wealthier. And they've come back to me and said, Hey, you know what, Sam, you know, that average net worth for the above average person post that really pissed me off because I wasn't there. But you know what? 10 years later, I'm right there. I'm actually above that. Thank you for kicking my ass to get me focused on my finances so that I can live a better life. And that's the cool thing about being around for so long. People mature through their ages. And I think a lot of people, you know, just like, well, I was a dumbass kid back then. You know, I, I was a dumbass kid back then. And then I grow up and I think, well, maybe perspective from people who've been there before matters. Uh, I love that. Love that. Love that. And that is a fantastic place to wrap up. Uh, even talking about empathy, because I was thinking it as, as you were describing it, being able to, to like understand that when people are in a bad place, or are seeking answers that they may come off a certain type of way. So even extending some grace around that. So Sam, I'm so glad that I could have you uh, back on the podcast. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this one. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, let's try to do it uh, sooner than five years, because I think that was the last time when I was on, maybe four or five years ago. Yeah, it was it, it was a hot minute ago. So we're going to do better than that. All right. Thanks again to Sam for coming on the podcast. I didn't know he was going to tell everyone that I went to Cranbrook, but that's cool. I also love that uh, he resonated with my middle school expulsion story and how that ultimately led to where I am today. And I think a big takeaway from that experience in itself is that sometimes the biggest curves take you straight to your destination. 
And on the points about planning, it really does make a world of difference. And as I mentioned, that's something that I'm thinking a lot about right now, planning for my own life as things are getting increasingly busy. And so I'll be talking a lot more about that on a future episode. I got a solo episode coming up in the next few, not sure exactly when, but if you enjoyed this episode or a thought was sparked that you didn't have before, go on ahead and share this with someone you know as soon as you're in a safe place because this really ain't worth final destinationing yourself. And as I said up top, be sure to check out the blog and join the free email community by visiting paybal, P-A-Y-B-A-L dot C-O slash email. Again, P-A-Y-B-A-L dot C-O slash email. And until next time, do something dope.